Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. And on the day that we were supposed to meet, I'm there in the tiny little office with the deli platter in the center of the desk, the two tiny computers, the lights flickering, the folding chair, and the knock on the door happens. And in walks this tiny little kid, basically. Like, I was like, hey, like, like this 22 year old, like, tiny little kid in the gray suit with the red tie. And he's like, hi, I'm Andy, I'm Michael's assistant. He's this, you know, Princeton business school graduate, you know, that these guys hire, you know, from like their lives. And I'm like, oh, hi, how you doing? He's like, oh, you know, we're here for the meeting. Michael wanted me to just come in and check everything, make sure we're in the right place and do everything. Yeah, like you're in the right place. This is me. Nice to meet you. And he goes, okay, great. Hang on for a minute. You know, I'll be back. Turns around, walks out, shuts the door behind me. I am again convinced not coming back. He's going to the car. He's like, Michael, like, I don't know what the fuck's going on here, but like, it is the right place. It's an MRI facility. He's in a tiny little shoebox of a room. There's like sandwiches wrapped up on the table. I don't know what's going on, but don't come in here. <laughs> it was what I was convinced he was going to tell him. So I'm basically sitting back going, I got a lot of sandwiches to eat for the next couple of days and a great story of how we just scared them all off. Hello, friends. Welcome back to The Light Watkins Show with yours truly, Light Watkins. If this is your first time here, I interview ordinary people just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith, often in the direction of their path, their purpose, or their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact the lives of many other people who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've directly benefited from their work. And today, I am honored to be in conversation with entrepreneur, author, and founder of what he calls the Midlife Mail Platform. His name is Greg Scheinman. I actually had the pleasure of meeting Greg a few months ago at a conference, and he was one of those people who takes up a lot of space, but in a good way, because when you're around Greg, you find yourself intrigued and inspired, and you admire his presence. He's got the youthfulness of someone who takes extremely good care of themselves, combined with the insights of someone who's lived some life, who's been in the world for a good amount of time, and who's soaked up a lot of wisdom along the way. So I wasn't surprised to hear that Greg started the platform called The Midlife Mill. Long story short, Greg grew up in New York, where he excelled in sports and fitness. And then after school, he started drinking and partying, as young people do. He let himself go a little bit. And in his early 20s, he was preoccupied with chasing the money, mainly as a movie producer, where he had a brief stint with Harvey Weinstein. And from the sounds of it, it didn't end well. But then later, Greg decided to do his own thing, and he started a company that produced sports videos for toddlers. 
which were modeled after those baby Einstein DVDs. And he started selling those out of the trunk of his car. And then later, get this, he got a meeting with former Disney CEO Michael Eisner, who heard about his DVDs and was interested in possibly acquiring Greg's company. And Greg tells a really awesome and funny story about his first meeting with Mr. Eisner, who flew in on his private jet to meet with Greg (laughs) at Greg's little one room office rental where he worked from a desk that was made out of milk crates. And so there was a lot of insecurity around that, which Greg had to ultimately overcome. And they ended up making a deal that helped Greg pivot into going all in on fitness and lifestyle, which was how he came up with the Midlife Mail platform. It's centered all around what Greg calls the six F's, family, fitness, finance, food, fashion, and fun. And all of this is in an effort to help men maximize middle age, which is Greg's passion. As always, I don't want to give too much of the story away, but I think you're going to be inspired after hearing Greg's story in his own words. And especially if you're a man in his 40s or 50s, you're really going to get a lot of value out of our conversation. Okay, so shall we get to this conversation with myself and Greg Scheinman? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm honored to introduce you to the world of the Midlife Mail. Greg Scheinman, it's good to have you on the podcast, sir. Thank you so much for making the time. I'm excited to dive into your story. White, thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure and a privilege to be here with you. Appreciate it. So I love to start off in these conversations talking about childhood. And I remember you grew up in, is it Northern Long Island or something like that? So I grew up on the North Shore of Long Island in a town called Great Neck. It's this little peninsula. Great Neck. On the long on the North Shore of Long Island, it's about 25, 30 minutes outside of Manhattan. They actually call it the Gold Coast, kind of the Great Gatsby area, if that tells you anything. Thinking back to the early days, little Greg, did you have a favorite toy or activity back then growing up that you remember? And you and I basically are the same age, so I, we probably have a lot of point of references that we share. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so if you're my, we're, we're pushing 50 right now, so we got to rewind a little bit back into childhood to those early days. As a young boy, as a little boy, I loved the firehouse. You know, that was the thing. I loved visiting firehouses. So I loved any kind of fire truck, ambulance, any of those types of toys. And I just remember with, my father and grandfather always visiting firehouses. Like that was our stuff to do. What did that evoke for you as a kid? Do you remember the firehouse? Was it about putting out fires? Was it about just the organization of it all? I think first and foremost, I just enjoyed spending time with my dad and with my grandfathers. And I was the first grandchild. I'm one of three boys. I'm the oldest Mm -hmm. of three boys. So I was the first there. So I think because of that, they were excited to maybe do things with with this new young boy that they had. So it kind of became tradition. As far as putting out fires, I don't think I saw it that way at the time. What I saw it as these big, shiny red objects, these Mm. heroic type of guys that Mm did this job 
all the different moving pieces and the parts. And it was also all about doing good, if that makes sense. And like they came when people called. Like in our town, also, there was a siren that would go off because there was volunteer fire departments. So when they needed firemen, there was a big siren, almost like a like a hurricane or a tornado type siren that would go off. Mm-hmm. I came to learn later that that would signal the firefighters to go to the firehouse, get on the truck and go out to fight the fires. And I just thought that was kind of a super, super cool thing that when people needed help, a fire broke out anytime, 24-7. These guys got to the firehouse, they got in the truck, the trucks that I got to see and, and climb on and, and go put it out. You know, that's what they did. So you mentioned your father and your grandfather were around as you were growing up. Do you remember any philosophies or ideologies that they would echo to you and maybe you and your brothers in the house? Things like, you know, you got to work hard to be successful, anything like that? You know, my father was a self-made man. My mother's father, my Papa Artie, we called him, was, you know, the hardworking, more blue collar guy. He was just grinding it out and he was living in Forest Hills, Queens, New York, in an apartment building with my grandmother, just kind of a grinder. You know, I, I thought of him as kind of a grinder in the garment industry. You know, that guy in New York that just got up, went to work, you know, grinding it out and they did fine. My father's father was a much more statuesque type gentleman. He had more of that madman type vibe. Mm-hmm. You know? in there, dressed that way, had that kind of look, that demeanor, more serious is what I remember. And both of these individuals, both of my grandfathers, unfortunately passed away when I was very young. So these are very early childhood memories, I guess, you know, five, six, seven. I don't think I got past 10 with mm-hmm. them both being, being alive. And my father was also a self-made man. He was an entrepreneur his entire life. And I didn't even know really what that meant for a very long time. I just knew that my father had his own business, that he was the boss. And when I would visit him at his business, he had the big office and it had a fish tank in it and a big giant desk. And he wore a suit every day. And then there were all these other people there that worked for him or with him. And they were out in the open and walking and milling about. And there was a big warehouse and it had forklifts in it and all this stuff. So I did sense the operational aspect or the differences of what I perceived to be kind of in charge. I guess he was the guy that created a business or took an idea to execution. And all of these other people who were always very nice to me as Alan's son who would come to work. And want to use the copy machine, you know, or sit in his office or go in the warehouse and take inventory or drive the forklift, which was always kind of a cool thing that I could sit on my dad's lap and drive the forklift. So I did have an understanding, I guess, or an appreciation that I guess his position was a little different in the, in the organization. Did he uh, say anything to you and your brothers, though, about, hey, you should own your own business or? Anything like that? Like, what was the familial idea of success? I guess I'm asking, what were your parents impressed with and other people that they maybe expressed? It's such a great question. You know, I do refer back to my childhood and and our upbringing as feeling like we had nowhere to go but down. 
that we lived a life of prosperity and a life of privilege before that may have even been a common term, you know, there, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. we lived in this community where we didn't want for anything. It was my mother, my father, my two brothers, and we lived in a nice house and dad had a company and we had nice cars and we got to do what we wanted to do. As far as an appreciation for work ethic, as far as kind of mentorship in that regard, I don't really recall getting a whole lot of that. I recall seeing him always working, seeing him get up and get dressed every day with the suit and the tie and going to work day after day. I have memories of him sitting at the dining room table, opening up the checkbook and sitting there and paying the bills and asking questions about that and seeing my name at the top of the checks because he named his holding company, Greg Evan Associates after me. And I came to realize later that there were in fact, no associates. It was just like, I you know what that, what that meant you know, overall, but seeing the lifestyle kind of from the ground up as he's the big dad and, and he's the father figure is the father. And I'm keep kind of looking at a, and observing what I did know and came to realize later is that he didn't graduate from college. Wasn't a particularly great student. was always a good athlete and he smoked way too much. You know, if you picture the tan, handsome smoker, again, madman esque almost like his father too, that he was this kind of larger than life person in character. Always incredibly sweet, always incredibly attentive, incredible father, provider. But there wasn't a lot of the, let me sit you down and tell me how it is, you know, or, you, or, or tell you how, how it is or how it's going to be. There was this feeling and belief that was prevalent around him or that he kind of, the aura that he put off and that I kind of interpreted as was that anything and everything was possible. And that you could do anything that you wanted to do if you went out there and and did it and executed on it. And he was living proof of that. But the measure of success very much seemed to be salary and title, particularly as a man. It was, I mean, we were, we were keeping score. You know, we lived in a town that kind of kept score, the car that you drove, the house that you lived in, the money that you had. So I think as a, as a, the measure of the man back then or the metric of success was very much salary and title and where you stood within this town, which was also a very insulated bubble. It was very far from reality in the rest of the country or even New York City, you know, or the rest of the world, which I came to learn more about later. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass 
if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. I remember my dad, he would come home. He was an entrepreneur as well. He would come home from work. He would plop down in front of the couch. He would ask one of us to get him a Heineken and he would ask me to go make him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And that was sort of, and he would just tune out in front of the television. My mom would be upstairs doing something. I never saw him do any sort of physical activity. And this is not a judgment. It's just observation. So for me, I would never characterize my dad as a healthy person (laughs) when I was young. And I'm curious what your experience was with your father. Would you characterize him as a healthy person? And if so, why? If not, why not? There's a little dichotomy to this, you know, for me, in that he was a very good athlete growing up. There were all kinds of clippings that I read and trophies that my grandmother would show me that he was a tremendous baseball player and basketball. He was a true student athlete all the way through through high school and did have an opportunity to play some basketball in college, but he never, never went and never, never pursued that. And even was apparently a tremendous bowler and almost went pro as a bowler, which was a memory that I had of him. As an adult, as a father, I would not describe him as particularly healthy. Who is the midlife male that I talk about right now that focused on career, again, salary and title, and with that regard, kind of let himself go. So he did become overweight, not obese, but softer, as in health and wellness and, and exercise and was not a priority. The sports or the activity that became part of his life were the country club sports, golf and tennis. And I recall many times seeing him get off the tennis court and immediately sit down and light a cigarette, get off the golf course, not even off the golf course, smoking the entire time, sitting down to pay the bills, solid gold Dunhill lighter, big ashtray, pack of lucky strikes on the table, drink on the table, checkbook open, top button of the shirt open, tie relaxed a little bit. Here comes the food. No real attention necessarily being paid to the healthiness you know, of, of the meals. We didn't grow up eating particularly healthy meals, you know, even. I remember for years of my life thinking that all vegetables came out of this Jolly green giant kind of (laughs) with this almost fluorescent yellow butter sauce on it. And they all got steamed in a microwave or something like that. And even if they were good for you to begin with, okay, they weren't when this process was done. And then the fried onion rings were drizzled on top. It was this makeshift kind of situation that was Mm -hmm. there. So to answer your question, no, I don't recall him living a particularly healthy life. And we'll get into him passing away young and the reasons for that. And again, from the maybe kind of lifestyle, I would join him for breakfast certain mornings. He would meet other business associates and friends at a diner 
in the morning. And I would go before school to join him and then get dropped off at school after. And it's again, four or five men, kind of suits, all little paunchy, you know, in their 30s, smoking at the table, eating bacon and eggs, getting ready to go to their office for however many hours in the day it is and come back home, you know, and do it all over again, you know, the next day. The tennis and the golf were on the weekends. It didn't change the smoking or the drinking, you know, per se. And then there were dinners Friday and Saturday night with other couples, you know, or, part, or things that were kind of grandiose. If you, if I was looking back on them now, not, yeah, and you guys not, used to yeah, say not particularly healthy. I mean, in retrospect, going back and looking at it that way, but from the outside looking in, doing everything that everybody else kind of was doing around our area, and successful by all other metrics of being a husband, being a father, being a provider, living a life of, again, prosperity and luxury, you know, there, maybe overindulgence in all of these areas, mm-hmm. and not particularly paying attention about maybe the next phase of your life or your health and, one, and your future. I don't think we were doing a lot of talking about longevity, you know, back then. Only talking, I don't think it was really a, a prevalent conversation around mental health, even health and wellness, what success really means different measurements of it back then. You all also shared a couple of pastimes. You would drive around in this convertible and listen to music. He would take you to hockey games. Did he talk to you at all about manhood and what it means to be a man as you guys were spending this quality time together? Man, I wish I had more time and more of those conversations. My father passed away when, I was, when he was 47. So I was 17 graduating high school and heading off to college. In context, I had another brother who was, who was 14 and another brother who was eight. So I was the oldest of, of the three. And for the last few years of his life, he was pretty sick. So the conversations were tough to have based on his condition. From a raising a young man into a man type conversations that I do recall having and that we did have and that were impactful and, and meaningful, you know, I was bullied for years. For several, particularly in, in, in my middle school years, around 13, started when I entered sixth, sixth grade. And as I was decent looking kid, big ego, you know, thinking his shit didn't stink in any way, shape or form. I was into girls early, particularly older girls you know, early. And because of that, a lot of the other guys didn't really care for me too much. And they took to bullying me and pushing me around, the older guys, because it was an interesting kind of bullying situation that I was popular in my own grade, at my own age and stage, and maybe advanced in certain areas, or at least had desires to act like I was advanced or wanting to advance, you know, faster. And some of the older guys didn't care for that, you know, very much. Socializing with the girls in their grade, you know, thinking I was a little too cool, you know, for school. I needed to get, I need to get checked a little bit. So I was getting the shit kicked out of me pretty regularly for a couple of years. Sixth grade, seventh grade, even when I got to eighth grade, you know, there were some kids that would come down from the high school just to make sure that I knew my place. And from the conversation aspect of with my father, he taught me how to defend myself. He taught me a great appreciation for not giving in to the bully, to punching the bully in the nose. Do you remember any specific advice that he said about that? Yeah, you may. 
don't give them a chance to hit you first. If it's going down, you better make sure that you hit them first. Okay. <laughs> you know, especially if you don't think you're going to win this one, you know, most of those, most of those fights don't tend to last very long. So make sure you get in or, you know, you, you hit first and you get it in and get it over with early. And that might stop this situation in there. That was, that was one piece of advice. You know, the other one was you know, keep, keep your left hand up was another, was another good one, you know, in there. But I do remember, you know, again, his advice being to not run from the problem, to not run from the confrontation. Mm. And also that I'm not going to protect you from this. And I'm not going to go into the school Mm. and tell them what they need to do. We're going to figure out what it is that you need to do. Teach you how you're going to handle this situation overall. And how you can gain more even from losing than particularly winning. And that the perception of what that would illustrate if you are willing quite frankly, to get your ass kicked every day, but stay in the fight, that that in its own right might wear the other guys down. They may go look for another easier, better target, you know, overall. Mm-hmm. Or you may earn some respect, which ultimately ended up happening in a few cases. Hey, this may not be the toughest kid around, but we're not going to really bother him because he comes back and I, I got a little respect for that. Did you employ the hit first tactic a few times and see Every opportunity out? I had, man. Every opportunity I had. And it was the scariest thing I had to do anytime I did it. When it was like three o'clock, we're going to the parking lot or we're walking outside and we're going to that spot, that designated, you know, fight spot. Mm-hmm. Right. As we're walking and the guy I'm fighting is in front of me, you know, three feet. I remember I'm not waiting until we get to the spot and turns around. I'm tapping him on the shoulder. He turns around. I'm hitting him right then and there halfway to the spot. We're going to get a jump on this thing. Overall, in there. So every opportunity I had to try to dictate or control the outcome or sway the inevitable from me ending up on the ground, getting my ass kicked to maybe getting in a few, I took that opportunity every time I had. And at the same time, your dad encouraged you to start lifting. Absolutely. Around that time, look, I was 13. I was scrawny as can be, skinny, like you could literally like count every rib. And it wasn't what we did. As you know, I was athletic. We played sports. We didn't lift. You know, we didn't go into gyms or lift weights or do. I didn't know shit about that. And again, I also didn't see it at home. It wasn't like my dad was doing it. Didn't have any older brothers to look at and say that they were doing it either. But this was a double-edged sword. Like the reason for this was twofold. One, no, I didn't want to continue to get bullied and lose. So not being as skinny as a rail might actually serve as a deterrent, you know, in there. And the second was I actually ripped my knee apart at 13 in a pickup basketball game. So I had my first knee surgery around the age of 13. And when I was immobilized back then, we didn't have the technology that we have, you know, now. So they would cast you up or put you in these large immobilizers, even the the rehabilitation process was much different. They didn't even encourage movement at the time. So all I could do was use my upper body because my lower body was immobilized. And this basically cast from my hip to my foot, you know, after my first surgery. And I was in this for like eight weeks, you know, and then it went to a softer immobilizer. But the process was months and months to regain movement of my knee and start working back through rehab to the point where you could walk and pedal a bicycle and do all these things. So that's when I started lifting weight. I'm like, I could curl, I could press, I could push, I could do these things. 
while I couldn't do anything with my legs because of what I was dealing with with my knee. So it was twofold, my reasonings for starting to pick up a weight. And I think obviously it made a huge impact in my life to Mm. have something to do in there, to be able to get out aggression, to be able to see physical change and transformation, to Mm. be able to be positive or find some positivity during a time where you can just otherwise be laid up and sitting around and doing nothing. When your dad first got diagnosed with cancer, you mentioned that he was sick for a few years. Did you think he was going to beat it in the back of your mind? Were you thinking this is a death sentence for him? And at the same time, what were your aspirations for yourself going forward? You know, you were about to go to college. What did you see yourself becoming? Because looking at potential death in the face may make you kind of think about those kinds of things a little bit more. Absolutely. At first, I don't think I looked it in the face at all. At first, I mean, I was completely in denial. It was just another you know, diagnosis, another word. Was he uh, stoic when he got that diagnosis? He was. And I remember also that he was misdiagnosed early on also by a doctor who was a family friend who was convinced that it was pneumonia mm-hmm. <laughs> and not cancer. Wow. And that when the... The actual diagnosis, the correct diagnosis actually came in even months later afterwards. There was an element of, of, of stoicism, you know, to it. Kind of like this weird, awkward silence that there is almost in a way like right now, if we sit and lean into it. Kind of like a okay, you get better from pneumonia, ideally, but do you get better from cancer? You know, like, okay, this is different. I can mm-hmm. rationalize and justify pneumonia, put down the cigarettes, maybe heal up. You get better from pneumonia. Okay. But cancer, like, is this the wake up call that you do not wake up from? It immediately changed. I think the family dynamic, it immediately changed kind of the, the vibe in the house that much. I remember the way my mother behaved and acted and coped with things or didn't cope you know, with things. The, degree and level of attention that was paid to my brothers and I changed significantly because there was a bigger priority in a way justifiably so, which was, are you going to live or are you going to die? Like what happens? What needs to get done? And on top of that, what happens with the business? My mother was a stay-at-home mom. Father was the entrepreneur. What happens with the business? How long are you going to be able to work and provide? Do people want to do business with somebody that they now know has cancer and may not be here or able to service the business? You know, all these questions that were way beyond my mindset, my thought process at the time. Also, things that have that have come back or things that I've I've thought about more and looked back on and reflected this way much later in life. But there was a real fear. There was absolutely kind of a fear that permeated, I think, throughout our house. You know, throughout our family, there was a sense of, of denial. There was a sense of, I don't think embarrassment is the right word in there, but more of, again, we we're in this environment where, quite frankly, people were not experiencing hardship. Subsequently, I know that there were a number of, of friends of my father's and friends of my mother's that did get sick and did get cancer. But we were kind of the first family that was like, 
that got hit with something that I knew of this heart. I feel like when things like that happen, when tragedy strikes, you really get to see what kind of family you're in. Are you the kind of family that that's going to hide everything because you're embarrassed? Are you the kind of family that's going to talk openly about just, you know, the nitty gritty of these kinds of things? Are you the type of family that's going to have the elephant in the room and just avoid it and just not talk about it at all? What kind of family did you discover that you were in? You were probably closest to the latter, you know, that you described the elephants in the room and we're not great at talking about it. Which is the most stressful out of all all those options, probably. Absolutely. And look, I love my family, you know, very much. Love my father very much. My idol in every way imaginable, even as I described to you his pattern and his behavior and the manner in which he lived in there, didn't take away from the fact that he was always incredibly loving, incredibly supportive, incredibly positive, and had nothing but tremendous attributes. And everybody loved him, life of the party, stylish guy. But he was also, again, the out there, as we described the lifestyle, guy doing some things that weren't particularly healthy either. That being said, also as it pertains to the family, as much as I love my family, we didn't really talk about things. We didn't really get help for anything. As my father got sicker, things became harder for my mother. She has her own issues that she's still working on. We're still working on them. (laughs) My brothers have their own issues. I had my own issues. We very much all kind of, I think, like internalized. Mm -hmm. And we're just kind of left in a way to deal with our lives however we decided to deal with them. You were the oldest Shyman boy, right? So mm-hmm. you must have felt like you were thrust into this sort of leadership position after your dad passed away and your other brothers and perhaps even your mother was looking at you to take a cue of how to deal with this situation. So talk about what you felt after the fact in that position of, of leadership. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to be a, a leader. I wasn't ready to to lead a family. I don't think I was ready to even be a a mentor, you know, to my younger brothers. I was angry also. I was bitter and I was angry and I had my own ego and narcissism and I was wanting to go off to college and have the time of my life and I was not in a mindset or place to really go off to college and have the time of my life then. And I was in in deny, I wasn't dealing with my my anger, my depression, my mm-hmm. loss in a healthy way at all. And I also did not feel like I had anybody to talk to. I didn't feel like burdening or talking to my mother. I didn't feel like she was capable of, of handling what I needed or giving me what I needed. Didn't feel like doing it with my brothers either if they were younger. And at the same time, I didn't feel like dumping on them. I also don't think I put myself in a place where they felt comfortable coming to me either. I left is what I did. Got up and I left and I went to Michigan to go to school where I did whatever I wanted because nobody was watching over me. And I went to school without having any real responsibility to pay for it or work for it and do anything to maintain it. It was just there. So, you know, you're 17, 18. You've lost the father figure, the guidance, the mentor, the resource, and you're on your own and you got money. You can do whatever you want. Nobody's checking up on you. So I did the very bare minimum in school to make sure I didn't get, you know, get kicked out. 
And I partied because that took away as much of the pain as possible. I could go out every night was a Saturday when you're in college, if you wanted it to be. So every night was a Saturday, you know, for me. And it was drunken evenings and it was girls and it was, you know, bar fights every once in a while. And it was, you know, some great times and some really bad times. Retrospect, you know, not a lot of behavior I'm particularly proud of. When I went to college, right, I studied advertising. No one I knew ended up doing (laughs) what they studied in college. Mm -hmm. You ended up as Harvey Weinstein's executive assistant. You ended up producing a couple of movies. How did you get from Michigan to Hollywood? Without having a family business to go into, without having, again, any guidance or any boundaries or any structure, I'm thinking about what is it that I think I want to do. Didn't want to be in a suit, you know, and tie. Didn't seem to like that. Saw that. Didn't seem to end up very well overall. What also seemed like fun and entertaining and the rock star party movies lifestyle? Well, the entertainment industry by nature seemed entertaining just by the, you know, by the nature of connecting those dots. So what if I did that? What if I went into the entertainment business, not fully even understanding exactly what that meant? So no. Let me do that. I think I want to be a film producer. That sounds better than sitting at a desk hmm? or going on to Wall Street or going back to even my hometown, you know, and certainly not going to be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or ironically, even an insurance broker, which I ended up being like a circle back. All the things I saw in my neighborhood didn't want to be those. So let me go be a film producer. I can do that. And it never occurred to me that I couldn't be that. No idea how, but it didn't occur to me that I couldn't be that. And when I graduated, barely graduated with a major in communications and a minor in film and video studies and gallivanting around you know, Europe for most of my junior year, studying, I can use the term loosely, study in Florence, Italy, and then traveling all over for the rest of the summer. Because remember, nobody was watching over me telling me what to do. Bill just went home. In a way, out of sight, out of mind, go have fun. Like you're one less person we have to deal with, you know, right now. Mm-hmm. When I got back to New York after graduation, did what any really good functional alcoholic would do. I got a job bartending and spent some time behind the bar, restaurants, and, and a few different bars, and ended up knowing somebody that had worked at Miramax Films in New York and had worked on Harvey's brother Bob's desk and got me an interview, which led to a job. That I didn't know anything about or how this even worked. You know, what does it mean to get a job as an assistant, even? And what do you do from there? But yeah, my first job in the entertainment industry right out of college, a few months after graduating, was going in for an interview and getting a job as Harvey Weinstein's assistant in New York by effectively, you know, making martinis for his other assistants during the interview process. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> And ending up as assistant number four out of four. And that was my start in that industry. And I spent almost two years as as Harvey's assistant. This goes back 20 plus years prior to the Me Too era. So what I can say to that is, while I wasn't privy or didn't see any of the things that have subsequently come to light at that time, not a great mentor, not a great guy at all. Mm-hmm. And ended up quitting that job around the two year mark and telling him to go, go fuck himself. And that my father would be rolling over in his grave if he knew I let somebody talk to me that way or treat me that way 
and I didn't do something about it. So it wasn't my place. So I left there to go on to produce my own films. And by the way, it never occurred to me either that leaving there, burning that bridge would have any detrimental effect on my career whatsoever. <laughs> you know, so I guess sometimes ignorance is bliss. So you did a couple of films and then you kind of pivoted into an entrepreneurial venture that everybody tried to talk you out of doing. Yeah, I did. You know, again, I was fortunate to be able to raise some capital for a couple of film projects after leaving there because independent film was hot, you know, at that time. Mm -hmm. And I knew people with money. At this point, I didn't have any. All the guys I said I didn't want to be like, they all had the money. The mm -hmm. ones that graduated from business school or actually went mm -hmm. to class, got jobs on Wall Street, went to work for the hedge funds, were working for dot coms that I also came to realize later, they didn't wear suits. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. They're sitting at trading desks in t-shirts and shorts, okay? Mm -hmm. Millions mm -hmm. of dollars. I had this all backwards, man. <laughs> I had this all wrong. Those guys put money into the film projects that I was trying to do. And that's how I got my first couple of film projects done. And big highlight of my life was, you know, New York Film Festival, seeing a screening of, of my first film called Two Ninas, which had Amanda Peet in it, who went on to become famous, Ron Livingston, who's gone on to become a big deal, Cara Buono, who's gone on to become a big deal. I mean, shit, Fred Norris from the Howard Stern show that I would listen to every day made a cameo in it. Jill Hennessy from Law & Order made a cameo in it. We made this little movie written and directed by a guy named Neil Turrets, who is still a friend to this day, that I had the opportunity to dedicate to my dad and to see mm. that dedication on the screen at the New York Film Festival was pretty cool. You know, that and to have a lot of people in the audience at that screening probably did not think I was going to do that or be able to do that, to see that. And I don't necessarily even really know how I did that in the manner in which I was living at the time either. So it's a little bit of be careful what you wish for. And what I started to realize was this is not a healthy place for me. This mm. is not a healthy lifestyle either. That the entertainment industry, it may be too entertaining. So I started to think about some alternatives. Where did the idea come from for Teen Baby Entertainment? So as I was working on transitioning out of the film business, this world of independent production, I got to preface the Teen Baby story that I went out to California to do a screening of one of my films. Back then, you have to sell the foreign rights to these films by holding screenings so companies could come in and if they liked the movie, they would make you an offer for Germany or Italy or wherever you know, out there because there was no, again, Amazon. There was no Netflix. It was just a different time, you know, the way content was distributed back then. It actually had to get into theaters or cable, you know, country by country you know, at the time. So I went out to California to kind of work on selling the foreign rights to one of my teams, which was the way you claw back your money when you don't have a big breakout hit, you know, on your, on your hand, you know, you hope you can kind of piece it back together and become right side up. And while I was at the sky bar of the Mondrian Hotel in Beverly Hills, California, you're nodding as if you've been there. So you know, the environments <laughs> that I was putting myself in and I had been out there for shit, probably like 28 days, you know, living out of this hotel on some hedge fund guy's 
dime basically. He was out there too with a suite and everything, you know, and you're, you're drinking and, and, and partying like a rock star and doing screenings of your movie every night. It was debauchery. It was a disaster. <laughs> what it really was. But I stumbled on this woman one night at the bar, literally like fell over her, super beautiful and just kind of stopped me, you know, right there, even in, you know, in my stupor and in my egotistical, I run this bar and here I am doing all this. And I just thought I met a hot blonde for the night or the weekend, you know, maybe. But if somebody would have told me that I would be married with two teenage boys living in Houston, Texas, many years later, I would have said, bet the under. That shit's never going to happen. But yeah, I met Kate, who's now my wife, at the Sky Bar of the Mondrian Hotel by tripping over her, cigarette and drink in hand. Somehow she took pity on me. I have no idea you know, how or why. And also kind of enjoyed kind of messing with me for the entire night and her and her friend tying my shoelaces together. So I tripped and fell down, you know, right, right in front of them, making a spectacle of myself, but somehow ended up getting her to agree to have lunch with me the next day. And once I sobered up and we did have lunch the next day, we got along, we exchanged information. She lived in Houston, Texas, which was not on my radar, nowhere near my map, but made a plan to come and visit and went down to Houston, Texas. And then along, we started dating long distance. I ended up moving to Miami for another production type job. She moved there. We ended up getting married. I'm giving you the short version of this and decided when we were going to settle down and clean up that Houston was going to be home. So when we moved to Houston, that's where we settled. I had about two years worth of runway saved up. Didn't know a soul in Houston outside of her. And we got pregnant. We had our first child, and I'm sitting at home watching Baby Einstein and Sesame Street and Sports Center. And I'm thinking, I could put this shit together. <laughs> I can do better than this. There's got to be other dads sitting at home. And back then, remember picture in picture? You know, we have like Baby Einstein playing on the big thing and Sports Center in the small little corner so I could watch my highlights and do everything. And I got the idea that I could put this together. Why can't I do the same thing that baby Einstein is doing? The only difference is I'm instead of classical music and colors and shapes and numbers and puppets and all this shit that I don't want to watch basically, but that has my kid glued to the TV. I could just do it with sports and do it with mascots and team fight songs and uniforms. And, you know, a football field is the same shape as a rectangle. Baseball is a diamond you know, right. field there. And that's how team baby entertainment was born. And I started making these little videos. Rented a studio, bought all the toys, you know, all the licensed toys, you know, posted a flyer, you know, and like sent a, you know, an email around like, who has kids? I need your kids, you know, <laughs> come down. They're going to be in this team baby video. And we started with the University of Texas Longhorns and Texas A&M. I mean, you know, start local because we have crazy, rabid, fanatical fans, you know, down here mm -hmm. and cranked out the first couple of videos, which were God awful also. The logo was awful. The production value, it was terrible, man. It was awful. And they sold though. Like they sold out of the trunk of my car before football games and on campus. And they started selling college bookstores and everything else because people got the concept. Oh, it's mm. baby Einstein for sport, for my team. Great. Became a big gift item. And two titles went to four, went to five, went to 10 trade shows, learning how to do this business, what it meant to like 
create a DVD and pick, pack, and ship and barcodes. I knew nothing. I had no idea how to do this. And spent my last you know, probably $10,000 on PR. And the PR firm in New York, they took pity on me and took my $10,000, which was a fraction of their normal you know, rate. Went to town, man. Placement after placement. And I'm getting written up, you know, in the Houston Chronicle and Austin Statesman and then the Dallas Morning News. And then the Wall Street Journal did like a little thing. And the New York, and as we're adding titles, we're hitting all these local newspapers. And then we made it to LA. I think it was the LA Times that did something on like our, our USC DVD. And they talked about this company in Houston, Team Baby Entertainment. And the article made us appear much bigger than we really were. And even when I say we, there really wasn't a we. There was a me in an office. The office was about the size of a shoebox, basically. It was a room that I had rented from a buddy of mine in an MRI facility. And every time they used the MRI machines, the power would kind of flicker. So the computers would kind of go off and on. I had two computers. One of them was an editing station where the videos were made. And I had a guy come in and edit because I didn't know how to edit anything. And the other one was where we ran our website and our e-commerce and our sales. There was a conference table in the middle that was held up by a bunch of milk crates. Basically, it was a slab of glass from like our last apartment. And we got rid of the glass tabletop because we figured it would kill our son if he ever bumped his head into it or shattered. So I ended up keeping it, putting it in the tiny little office. And that became the table in the middle of the room where all the magic of Team Baby was happening. And this article in the LA Times, I guess, landed on the desk of Michael Eisner who was the former CEO of Disney. And apparently his non-compete was over and he was looking for things to invest in. He'd started a company. And I get this phone call one day and says, come out to LA. We read about you. We want to meet you and talk about Team Baby Entertainment. Do you know I had bought Baby Einstein when I was at Disney and da, 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 And it went from $28 million to this billion dollar thing. I'm like, I'm very fucking aware. I am very aware of who you are <laughs> <laughs> and what happened. And the irony is Disney used to own Miramax. So bringing this full circle, like years down the road, I used to answer the phone when he would call for Harvey. And now he's calling me, or at least his assistant is calling me. You know? so, so here's what ended up happening, which I think actually led to the actual bigger event. Can you come out to LA? Can you meet with us? Can you do that? We're in? And I had to tell him no. I had to tell him, no, I can't. Because the time that you want me to meet, I have to be at a trade show that I've spent, again, now the last money I have. I mean, remember, I was in a revolving door, you know, money in, money out, man. There was nothing extra. Everything was done with, with intention of how we're going to move the needle to get to the next thing. So I had spent what little money I had left on a 10 by 10 trade show booth. And I had to go because I had DVDs to move. I was going to keep the lights on and get to the next DVD and see whether this thing was actually going to work. Remember, I hadn't drawn a dime you know, on this thing yet either. So I had to tell them, no, I can't. And here's why I can't. So they stopped and paused, probably not getting used to being told no when they ask somebody out for, for a meeting you know, there like that. And I asked them if they wanted to reschedule and they said, I'll get back to you, which I thought meant I'll never get back to you. I'll never hear from you again. And a few days later, I got a call saying, hey, we're flying east. Would it be cool if we stopped in Houston and met with you on our way to New York? Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. <laughs> I'm convinced they're not coming still at this point. 
But I said yes. And then I started freaking out once this ended up on my calendar. They're going to come here. This is worse. I'm working in an MRI facility. I got a conference table that's being held up by milk crates right now. I don't have a <laughs> pot to piss in or a window to throw it out. I, right. I am going to be completely exposed as a joke right now, if they even show up. So I go home to my wife and I'm like, Kate, what do I do? Like, should, should I rent like a conference room or like, maybe like we get like a hotel suite or, or you're like doing that. And I got to make this look like a company. I got to make it look like a business. I think, you know, like, isn't that what you do when the former chairman of Disney is flying in on a private plane with his, I'm picturing entourage, like I'm like the whole thing. Like, isn't that what you do? And to her credit, my wife says, no. That's not what you're going to do. It is what it is. You're just going to show them exactly who you are, exactly how you're doing it, how you're getting it done, and what the potential is for it to be. I think that's what he's really going to want to see because that's what's real. And don't sell yourself short because you've done a lot. And if he's coming in, something he saw was interesting to him. And she's just like, you don't have to have the money. You don't have to do anything. He has it. So she convinced me not to do anything different, except to get a deli plate. She said, get a deli platter, okay? Because everybody likes sandwiches and likes deli. <laughs> and you're a couple of nice Jewish boys, so you should sit down and you should have food there. You know? So that was what I did. And on the day that we were supposed to meet, I'm there in the tiny little office with a deli platter in the center of the, of the desk the two tiny computers, the lights flickering, you know, the folding chair and the knock on the door happens and in walks this tiny little kid, basically, like I was like, like this 22 year old, like tiny little kid in the gray suit with the red tie. Okay. And he's like, hi, I'm Andy. I'm Michael's assistant. You just, you know, Princeton business school graduate, you know, that these guys hire, you know, to run like they lost. I'm like, oh, hi, how you doing? He's like, oh, you know, we're here for the meeting. Michael wanted me to just come in and check everything, make sure we're in the right place and do everything. Yeah, like you're in the right place. This is me. Nice to meet you. And he goes, okay, great. Hang on for a minute. You know, I'll be back. Turns around, walks out, shuts the door behind me. I am again convinced not coming back. He's going to the car. He's like, Michael, this is, <laughs> right. not, yeah. Like, I don't know what the fuck's going on here, but like, it is the right place. It's an MRI facility. He's in a tiny little shoebox of a room. There's like sandwiches wrapped up on the table. Okay. Like, I don't know what's going like, but don't come in here. <laughs> it was what I was convinced he was going to tell him. So I'm basically sitting back going, I got a lot of sandwiches to eat for the next couple of days. And a great story, you know, of how, of how we just scared them all off. And he comes in just comes in a few minutes later. He doesn't knock, which is great. I love it. Just comes in, pushes the door open. Great. And he's by himself, introduces himself, statuesque guy. I'm like, wow, holy shit. Okay. Like I'm in the room where he's in the room. And he sits down and unwraps the sandwich. Thanks for the sandwich, the deli platter, unwraps it, you know, great. So you didn't even get a new table. You still had the crates and everything. Yeah. yeah, The crates were holding up the glass tabletop. Mm -hmm. And the only reason, again, it was a glass tabletop is because my wife was like, you have to get this out of our place because our son is going to kill himself on this. Okay. I don't want a glass tabletop in here. You know, that's right at his forehead height at this point in there. 
And he sits there and he starts asking me questions, question after question, but none of them about the business. Not a single question about DVDs, not a single question about Team Baby Entertainment. Where did you grow up? Tell me about your family. Oh, you have two brothers? Oh, I have three sons myself. Hmm? We ended up talking about summer camp. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I read your book, Camp. I thought it was really great. And we ended up talking about summer camp. I went to camp in New Hampshire. Oh, I went to camp in Pennsylvania. Yeah. We started talking about summer camp. We started talking about sports and we started talking about activities and we started talking about you know, philosophies and we started talking about every other than like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing in this office building? Like, what, what's this all about? What does that computer do? What does that computer do? Is really, there's nobody else that's involved in this? How do you learn how to make a DVD? Where are all these kids coming from? Where are you getting the footage? All of this, how many, you know, then started to kind of indirectly get into the business, but not really, you know? Tell me about your wife. How long have you been married? How did you meet her? You had no idea you know, about my background. No idea that I worked in film before. Like, no idea. But he's asking all these, you know, questions. And I'm not even sure what I should be sharing in return. Mm. But I thought the personal stuff was great. You know, I'm an open book. Let's talk about family. Let's talk about kids. Let's talk about my dad. Let's talk about camp. Let's talk about... And I think for maybe two minutes, maybe the last two minutes was a business question or two. Where do you want this to go? What do you think you're going to be able to do with this? Oh, I think we could have DVDs for every major sports team in the country. I think we could match all these DVDs with celebrities to their favorite teams and get these guys to narrate them. I think we're the baby Einstein of the sports world. And he basically said, hmm, maybe. It was kind of like, great. Well, we're going to go fly east now okay? <laughs> and, and, and take my other meetings. Great to meet you. Really enjoyed this. And we'll be in touch. Okay. And then turned and exited the same way he had entered. And that was that. And I'm sitting there and going, okay, no idea what just happened exactly. <laughs> complete awkward silence by myself. Wasn't even ready to call Kate back and explain to her what happened. Mm -hmm. Or a couple of my friends that I told this was happening. And I go home and I start telling her about the meeting that night. And I'm telling her, I think I'm still getting this part. Man, if I could tell you, it's probably like four hours later, like maybe five, four hours, whatever it takes really to get from, from Houston to New York and do whatever they had to do, you know, in there, I got a call. From Ann, and he's like, Michael loved you and loved the meeting. And we talked about it and the whole flight. And he wants to invest. And we want to invest $2 million in the company and discuss with you what that kind of equates to and put you under a contract and make sure you can afford to pay your bills and, da -da 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 and all this other stuff. And let's see what we can really do here. And it was like, like Shark Tank moment before there was Shark Tank. Really? Like, you're not one of my college buddies, just like, like pulling one, you know? <laughs> like, this is real. And they did everything they said they were going to do. They sent over a term sheet. I had to get an attorney. I'm freaking out, going from broker than broke, basically, <laughs> and having you know no idea what's going on, and so to having a piece of paper after a meeting that one of the most powerful men in the history of the entertainment industry is offering to invest seven plus figures into this little tiny business that I started, it was life-changing, life-changing. And we ran it up for a few years and did, a, and, and did some amazing, amazing stuff. World changed. 
DVD business kind of started to go away. Pediatricians started to say, don't put your kids in front of the TV you know, <laughs> for hours at a time. They got involved in some other bigger businesses. Remember a lot of the people we used to do business with were starting to go out of business. KB Toys, Borders Books, you know, even Toys R Us. Target stopped carrying DVDs the same way. And again, the landscape was changing. And as quickly as we went up in valuation, we got to a point where we were starting to come down just as quickly. What was it like getting mentored by Michael Eisner over those years? I'm assuming you guys were talking on a frequent basis and Great share question. wisdom. We were, we were talking very frequently for quite a while. And did he ever say what he saw in you that made him want to invest in you? Yeah. And that part was really cool to see and was really cool to hear. You know, when there were there was press around kind of the investment in the acquisition, you know, that made it to the papers. And he was saying publicly that he's, you know, happy that I'm going to stay on as the CEO and has confidence in me to run the business. And, and he was an incredible mentor, incredibly wise individual. I wish I held up my end of the bargain, really. I wish I did better. I wish I listened more and talked less, you know, back then. Mm. You know, I try not to look backwards now. I try not to have, you know, any regrets. You know, it's like, what is it? Either, you know, either win or you learn, you know, you don't lose. But man, I felt like a winner for a while. And boy, did I feel like a fucking loser for an even longer while. Because my identity was so wrapped up in it also. You're Michael Eisner's partner. You're running this baby video company. You're on the big idea on CNBC with Donnie Deutsch. You're on HSN, you know, on July 4th weekend, hawking DVDs. You're in the paper, you know, it was weird, man. And I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't do a great job with it. I certainly Mm -hmm. didn't do a great job with it when it was on the way down. It's a lot easier to do a good job when it's on the way up. Didn't really do a good job with it on the way down. I didn't really know a lot about business again. And here's the other thing. I didn't have anybody else to call. Or ask, you know, and I also didn't know that I should have been asking and listening to him and even his people more too, because I thought that was a sign of weakness. Right, I'm supposed to know what I'm doing. You told me I'm still the CEO and you have confidence in me. I'm supposed to know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm winging it. So some days it goes all right, and other days it doesn't. And by the way, we're having our second child. You know, at this time, my expenses are going up. My stress level is going up. You stop doing a lot of the stuff that was fun for you. And now you have all these other things to deal with vendor compliance and logistics. And now you're flying different places and meeting different people and wearing a lot of hats. I didn't have my dad to turn to and ask. Couldn't talk to my mom about any of this stuff. Didn't really have any friends in the Houston area that I felt close to to talk to. Is in my own little vacuum and bubble. Had burned so many bridges with so many of my other friends earlier on that I didn't have didn't feel like there was a lot of places to turn or get advice. I mean, didn't address the mental health issues of anxiety and stress and imposter syndrome and, and depression. Where were your six Fs at that time? Obviously, you hadn't developed this yet, but for you personally, you're now in your what, late 30s. What was happening with your family, fitness, finance, et cetera? Not good, man. Not good. I was over-indexing at work. I had fallen like head over heels into the over-indexing trap of trying to make this a success and dig myself out of whatever hole was there. And when you chase that shit, instead of letting it happen, you know, it gets worse. 
So I wasn't coming home happy, wasn't coming home healthy. I was smoking and drinking, even though I was trying to exercise in the sun. I was not in great shape. I mean, some one point I ballooned up to like just about like 200 pounds. For reference, I'm like 175, you know, right now. There was some muscle underneath all that flat, you know, that I had put on. But I remember I was buying pants and I was like, holy shit, I'm like a 34 waist. For reference, I'm like a 32, you know, right? Like it was not good, man. It was not good. You're trying to be the best dad I could be, but I cringe at some of those pictures way out of bounds. This was not life-changing financially for us either. It wasn't like the baby Einstein deal. It wasn't like somebody waltzed in and gave us, you know, boom, you're acquired. We're Disney. We own it now. You walk away with a pot of gold. This is, we're going to kind of do this together. This was an investment. So yeah, I had a salary and I was able to cover things, but this was on the come. Like, hey, what can we do with it? Really make it happen. So no, was my fitness great? No. Were my finances great? No. Was my food and nutrition great? No. It was my, my fashion and style great? No. I'm wearing like whatever college or pro gear shit they sent down to us to use in all the videos and everything else, you know? And was I having much fun? Not anymore. From the outside looking in, people thought it was great. But people always thought it was great what I was doing from the outside looking in. I never thought it was that great. Looked pretty good. Looked great. The film production early on, what was happening with Team Baby Entertainment, what ended up happening after that. It's easy to make things look good. Really hard for them to actually be good. For you to authentically really feel like things are in a good place to actually be able to put things in a good place. That's hard. So you decided to pivot to insurance. Yeah, talk about a 180. And when I say, you know, when you say I decided to pivot, a lot of the decisions I made were not decisions I made. (laughs) They were decisions that were made in a way for me. So the decision to exit Team Baby Entertainment was made for me. Iser's people bought the Topps Baseball Card Company. There was an opportunity to merge it in with the Topps Baseball Card Company. We were failing miserably at the time. I was failing miserably or had failed miserably. There was going to be no future investment to save or salvage this. So it was a pennies on the dollar. Thank you. Goodbye. God bless. And I'm back to what do I do now? My identity has been tied up in this company. I still don't really know a whole lot of people in Houston, you know, because this is another thing. Now I got two kids. I may have a shorter runway than when I even started, you know, this thing, because I got a mortgage. I got a couple of cars now. I got private school to pay for. And I got this opportunity to join an insurance and risk management firm where I knew these guys. I knew the owners and said, why don't you come over here? Be in this business. We're going to build and grow this agency. And residual income, you don't have to know anything about the business, but use your business contacts You can and your networking skills. You can go after anybody and anything that you want. You know, you line them up and we can help teach you how to knock them down. And it sounded, on one hand, incredibly boring compared to everything I had done. And everything I said I was never going to do, put a suit on, go to an office, grind it out, build something kind of one brick, you know, at a time that everybody needs out there and has to be getting from somebody. There's a gazillion insurance agent. How do you differentiate? I'm just going to become one of those guys, I guess. I'm going to be my dad, maybe. I don't really own this. 
which actually kind of sounded like a good thing a little bit. I think it was a little burnt out on owning shit and doing a little burnt out on, on doing things that nobody actually needed. So some of it sounded interest out oh, residual income. That sounds responsible. Okay. Building something or selling something that everybody actually needs. That sounds like it could be okay. Maybe being a disciplined and responsible provider for my family, as opposed to this, you know, risk-taking, run and gun, unstable entrepreneur guy. I did not have another million dollar idea either. So I said yes, but I said yes under one condition. I have to have an opportunity to buy in. I have to have an, I don't just want to be an employee. I don't just want to be a commission-based guy, a gun for hire. It's got to be a way for me to, to buy it. I learned anything from the last experiences. You got to get some ownership. You, know, you got to see the table. You got to have something you know, in, in there. And I was able to secure that type of an arrangement. If you do this, Greg, we do this. If you, you know, build a book, hit these metrics, everything else, we'll open up the opportunity for you to, to buy into the business. And that's what happened. I went to work and I started to build a book of business the only way I knew how, which was... And you had to make things. Didn't know to sell insurance, didn't know anything about insurance, barely knew how to spell insurance. I knew how to buy insurance. That's what I've been doing for years. Knew that. Knew I had a reputation as a solid entrepreneur, as a risk taker. So didn't have any experience or credibility as a risk manager, but I thought I could tell stories, thought I could do this differently. So I created a television show interviewing entrepreneurs and risk takers, risk takers with Greg Scheinman, basically. <laughs> and I invited the biggest and brightest and best risk takers in and around the Houston area on the show to come and talk to me. Mind you, I did not have a show at the time. So I said, I'm going to create the show and I'm going to go call all these people and I'm going to go tell them that I have a show, a TV show, a 30 minute talk show where I spend a day in the life with Houston's top entrepreneurs and risk takers. And I would love for you to join me. And that's what I did. Nobody bothered to ask when it was on or where it would be airing. They just said, when do you want to come? (laughs) Because people I found, they like talking about themselves. Like I'm doing right now. This is why, you know, this is why we're doing what we do now, you know, in a lot of ways. <laughs> so I, then I took this list of people that said yes to coming on the show. This high profile list of people who were coming on the show, turned it into a spreadsheet, put a little logo on the top, everything else, went over to Houston PBS, the TV station here, and said, hey, guys, I got a 30-minute talk show featuring the best and the brightest entrepreneurs and risk takers in Houston. And all I need from you is 30 minutes worth of airtime every week. You cool? And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like, that's all I need. I need 30 minutes worth of airtime from you on Houston PBS every week. And I'll just deliver you the show. You, of course, also said, look, I used to work with Harvey Weinstein and Michael Eisner's partner and some really- I didn't even get that far, really. I didn't even get that far. (laughs) I I wasn't even sure it mattered, okay, at that point. They're like, you have, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I'm covering all the production costs. Okay. What I got when Team Baby went away was I inherited the editing equipment to the count. Like I had everything. And I had a guy who knew how to do this that I wanted to keep employed. Oh my God. So they're like, okay, how does Thursday at like eight o'clock sound? They're like, we'll give you 13 weeks. You know, like you deliver the first 13 episodes. We'll see how it goes. And then they said, well, by the way, no advertising on PBS. You can't sell advertising. You can't do like they gave me the rules about PBS. I said, great. I said, but can I brand it? I said, can it be presented by? I said, I've well watched some PBS shows. They're all presented by somebody. I said, can it be presented by somebody? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. Great. Now it's presented by me. 
okay? And my insurance company. Nice. Mm-hmm. So here it is, Risk Takers, every Thursday, whatever, on PBS television, hosted by Greg Scheinman, presented by insurance mm-hmm. and risk management. And that's how I started building my book of business, putting this television show out there week after week. It ended up getting syndicated in a print. The interviews ended up in a print version in like Houston newspapers and magazines and everything else. And my name was everywhere all over this. And these people that came on and I got to spend the day with, I developed some pretty good relationships with, pretty good rapport. And then what do you do, Greg? Oh, yeah, well, I had this film career and then I sold this company to Michael Eisner. Oh, you did what? Yeah. And after I sold this company to Michael Eisner, it merged in with Tops. And and now I'm, you know, I joined this insurance agency and I'm investing in this insurance agency and I, I run risk management for kind of entrepreneurs, risk takers, and people like us. And we're going to grow and scale this business. So if you can like eat it, drink it, work out with it, those are the things I'm into. Those are the types of guests I have, entertainment, hospitality. Huh. I tell you like 70% of the people that came on the show, we ended up doing 28 episodes. Like 70% of the people that came on the show ended up either becoming clients of mine in the firm or referred me to individuals and companies that became clients of mine in the firm. And over the course of a couple of years, built a multi-million dollar book of business which was throwing off hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in residual income. I got my equity in the firm and we sold the firm at the end of 2020. And I ended up leaving in August. Should have left in, back in December, but ended up staying, had to sign for a year, didn't make it a full year. It was part of the transaction. It was time for me to go and move on to the next thing. What's interesting too, is that year was the year that you started living in your bonus time. So talk a little bit about that and what that means for you. Look, it was a hard 12, 13, 14 years. I mean, I moved through the story quickly, but I was there for like, I think it was like 13 years, 14 years. And again, if anybody would have told you, I would have lasted in the insurance industry for that amount of time (laughs) after doing what I had done and knowing who I am. Again, I would have said, bet the under, ain't going to happen. But here's the thing. And for, for guys out there too, we got families, we got wives, we got kids, we got responsibilities, we got overhead. We got shit we got to handle. So quitting my job then to just go follow my passion was not an option at the time. Putting money in the bank was what needed to happen. Getting up, getting dressed, going and doing my job was what was important, was what needed to get done. And while this didn't feel like me, well, it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, whereas I wasn't fully bought in and feeling like my biggest, brightest, most authentic self that everybody talks about. Hmm? <laughs> I had to just show up and do my fucking job because I was making a lot of money. And now I also had hitched my wagon to this horse. It was growing and taking off. And my partners in this firm are machines. And I say that in a positive way, ultra committed, ultra committed, mega producers. We went from 45 people to 200 people at the time that the firm was acquired. So I'm incredibly grateful and fortunate to have even gotten the opportunity that I got at the time that I got it and to have had even the smallest seat at the table. And they knew also halfway in that I wasn't all the way in. You can't hide that shit. But to answer your question, kind of when I, hit 47. 
My father passed away at 47. So at 47, my father's life ended. At 47, that's when mine began. That's when I got to start doing what I really enjoy doing. You know, when COVID happened, and I would not wish a global pandemic on anybody, what I learned is I'm built for it. All the battles I was fighting, all the things I was wrestling with and struggling with, they all went away. I didn't have to put the suit on light and go to the office. I didn't have to pretend to be something I was not anymore. I didn't have to fight and lobby for a corporate wellness program or time to exercise and work out. Nobody could go to the office. I could just do what I wanted. All of a sudden, I could dress the way I wanted to dress, not shave, exercise every day. I could write. I could speak. I didn't have to walk around the office worrying about whether anybody saw me there or being there or not being there, door open or door closed or, you know, gossip and politics and production and everything else. All of it was gone, gone. And when you strip everything away, you get the opportunity to choose what it is you bring back and what's really important to you. So yeah, I started taking care of my clients, but differently because we all had to, to do it differently. And then I started the blog which became the newsletter and the podcast rebranded, which became 200 episodes later. And the newsletter and the stories from the podcast became the book, which will be out this year. And I developed my six Fs of family and fitness and finance and food and fashion and fun and started to live authentically through all of them and started seeing that as the metric and measurement of success versus salary and title. And can I start turning those Fs into As? And start working on each one of those areas each and every day and prioritizing the things that are important because we don't get a second shot at this. And 47 was the wake-up call my father never woke up from. I'm going to do more. I'm going to do more in this next phase of my life than I did in the first phase. No doubt. Absolutely 100% certain that this next phase of my life will be the best phase of my life. And that's not to say that I didn't have some great shit going on at various times. But I am taking all of the experiences that I have had and everything that I have learned along the way and applying it to maximizing the next phase of my life. And that's become transformative. Man. What's happened there has become enlightening. And it's enabled me to live my message now and to help coach other men and to get on bigger stages and show people that it's not only possible, but highly probable to change your life if you're willing to put in the work. Once you figure out what's important, I say, you know, knowing what's important is what's most important. When you figure that out and you get that down and you can put it on paper and you can write out your own map, you know what I'm calling out like my maximized action plan? What does my life look like three years down the road, five years down the road? And you start reverse engineering back into the steps you need to take to make it happen. Man, that's magical. Again, there. Mm. When you get to aggregate and curate and eliminate, like take the best, aggregate it in from men like yourself and the other 200 guys that have come on the podcast, curate it down to the really most amazing, impactful, best stuff that works for you, and eliminate all the other shit that doesn't. Like now you're on to something. You have this guide on your platform, which is called the No BS Guide to Maximizing Midlife and Getting Back to What Matters Most. Mm 
As we wrap up this conversation, because I want to respect your time, I want to just talk about a few of the things that you mentioned in that guide so that you can give a little context so that people who are listening to this can understand what you basically represent now in this midlife male platform. So you talk about getting a late start is better than not starting at all. Mm. What do you mean by that? I'm glad you read the guide. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> and doing where I'm at, at uh, in life, you talk about where I'm at in life is that I'm enjoying this conversation that I'm having with you. And I'm going to enjoy my chiropractor appointment 20 minutes from now when we get off. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just making better choices and decisions and where I'm allocating time. And I'm fortunate to allocate time intentionally to who gets it you know, and what we get in return. What I mean by getting a late start is better than than not starting at all is we get hung up. We get hung up on the how. People talk about the why all the time. Find your why, you know? I think especially most of us in middle age, we know our why. We know why we want to be better husbands or better fathers and better providers. And we want to be happier and we want to be fitter, go from fat to fit or drink a little less or do this. What we struggle is we struggle with the how. And we struggle with this belief that, we're too old or it's too late, or I've been doing these things too long. You know? And it's not how everybody else you know, does it. And they're on this path. And you know, it's hard to set habits and it's hard to break habits. What I mean by it is it is, in fact, never too late to start making changes. Mm. Don't get fixated on the, on, on the why. Don't worry even about the how. Mm-hmm. Just start today, right here, right now, making one better decision one better choice because we have so much runway ahead of us. If we start making better decisions, living the life that we want, and I don't mean go out and quit your job and follow your passion, okay, which could be galactically irresponsible for most people out there. If you have the means that you're able to do that responsibly, sure, more power to you, you know, do whatever you want. But what I mean is that it's never too late to start making better choices. You can swap alcohol for water or some other non-alcoholic cocktail of your choice, or even cut back. You want to get fit? You can start going for a walk. You can take the stairs instead of the the elevator. You want to pursue a hobby? Great. Why do we think we have to give up our hobbies when we get older? Play in the band. Pick up the guitar again. Start painting. Again, 40, 50, 60, 70, and beyond. What we have the capability and the capacity to do at those ages and stages is phenomenal. We need to stop seeing midlife as a crisis and start mm-hmm. seeing it as an opportunity to live our best lives and that our best days are ahead of us still. So don't get hung up on the being too old. Don't get hung up on it being too late. Don't get hung up on the, I don't know how. Get hung up on, I know why, but I can't. And coming up with the reasons of why and the justification and the validation that you seek for all the reasons why things can't happen and just start doing. The progress and the purpose and the payoff ultimately is in the doing. Just start doing. Trust me on this one. You will like the way you feel. Speaking of doing, talk about the difference in resolution and resolve. So we know what happens, right? Come New Year's, that's why resolutions. People make resolutions. And what do they do? I was in the gym business for a while too. Everybody races to the gym. You know, everybody makes their resolutions. 
And they usually start thinking about their resolutions when they get back from their holiday vacation or all of their overindulgences and everything else. And they make these big, grandiose resolutions of how they're going to change and how they're going to transform and what they're going to do differently this year. They make their plans. Join the gym, or I'm going to do this, and I'm going to take a vacation. I'm going to... And you know what happens the vast majority of the time? You come out of the gate hot. Mm -hmm. We're going to go from zero to 100. By the way, we've never taken the car this fast before, okay? But we're just going to level down on that gas pedal. And we're going to try to go from zero to 100 because it's January 1st and I made these resolutions and damn it, I'm going to go do it, man. So I'm going to go zero to 100. Instead of, I haven't been to the gym in five years. Now I'm going to go every day for the next 30 days. I've had six Diet Cokes a day, every day for the last five years. All of a sudden, now I'm not going to have a Diet Coke. Not at all. Not one. I'm going to go zero to 100. The alcohol is going to go down. The cigarette's going to go down. I'm going to throw away all these clothes because I'm not going to wear them anymore. I'm not going to fit into them because the new me is going to be here because of all my resolutions. It's false optimism, quite frankly. It's short-sighted. It's like seven-minute abs mm-hmm. or a crash diet or anything else. It's not sustainable. It's not longevity-based. It's not strategic or tactical. It's In a way, it's an unattainable goal. It's setting yourself up for failure. What I mean by resolve over resolution is don't make resolutions, practice resolve. Resolve allows you to go the distance. Resolve is a long-term sustainable longevity-based plan of action. When you have resolve, you are making a commitment to yourself to develop the habits, the consistency, the preparation, the accountability, the discipline to maintain create and maintain a lifestyle and habits that last. And these things need to become ingrained. They need to become part of your DNA. They need to become part of who you are. So if you don't want to do them, you're not going to do them. If you don't enjoy doing them, you're not going to do them. If you don't see the opportunity, the purpose, process, and payoff to it, it's not going to stick around. Now, you may drop the five or 10 pounds in the 30 days. You may be able to go two weeks without the Diet Coke. You may buy a different size pair of pants for a little while, but we've all seen this movie where it comes back. Hmm? (laughs) So what I mean by practicing resolve is approach your plan, approach your life with intention. Play the long game. It's not working out every day for 30 days for two hours a day. It might be exercising three days a week for one hour at a time with the right trainer in the right facility with the right plan. It's likely not going from all the Diet Cokes to no Diet Cokes, but to scale back and to say, look, I'm going to go from six to four, then from four to two, then maybe from two to one. We think the consistency is this straight line right to the top. It just goes up in that direction. That's not what consistency looks like. What consistency really looks like is an arrow that is heading in an upward direction, but it has all these little blips in it too along the way. It's a day that you did miss your workout, but you got right back on track. It's Mm -hmm. a scheduled active recovery day. It's enjoying the burger during the game with your buddies at the bar, but just not doing it five days a week anymore. It's swapping out the Diet Coke for the healthier beverage. Not 100% of the time, but maybe we're working ourselves towards 70, 80, 90% of the time. So that's what I mean by by resolve over resolution and setting yourself up for success. No shortcuts. 
No excuses. How are you defining success these days? Chasing total life wellness is what I'm doing. For me, that's success. Do I have my priorities in what I consider the right order? And again, everybody's priorities are different. And what I mean by this is set your own intention and set your own priorities. And this is what I work with a lot of men on right now. Again, knowing what's important is most important. For me, family, fitness, finance, food, fashion, fun, in that order. Because family always comes first for me. Fitness, which is really health. If I don't have my health or I'm not fit, I can't do the things I want to do with the people I want to do them with. Same with finance. I don't need to conquer the world and become a billionaire, but it's very important. I want to have enough to do the things I want to do with the people I want to do them with for as long as I want to be able to do them. You know, I can say food is really nutrition. You know, what I put in my body matters to me because that helps me stick around longer and feel good and have the energy in my 50s and beyond. You know, when I talk about fashion, what I really mean is style, confidence, you know, just a way and a look that makes you feel good and authentic. And then fun, which a lot of guys are not having enough of. For me, if it's not fun, then I'm done. I want to be having fun now. And that doesn't mean that I do not work hard. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't work hard. Doesn't mean that every day is rainbows and unicorns. But it means that I am enjoying what I'm doing. I'm enjoying who I'm doing it with. I'm enjoying who I'm doing it for. Mm -hmm. And it matters and it means something to me. Mm -hmm. And there are activities and events and experiences that are specifically built in for the sole purpose of those are just fun. Mm -hmm. And we need to schedule that the same way we schedule you know, the dentist appointment, the same way we pay our taxes. It's that important. So to me, that's what makes up success. How does that portfolio look? What does that pie chart look like? in there. And if I'm over-indexing in any one area or doing that, then we just reallocate. We reshift a little bit. But those are, you know, for me, that's kind of the compass. I look at those things and I ask myself the question, how am I doing in those areas? The F's into A's. Now, you don't have to be a straight A student, but am I operating in a manner that makes me happy and that I feel successful? Thank you so much, man, for sharing so vulnerably and transparently. I like to end the conversation just looping back around to childhood and going back to your fascination with the firehouse or the fire station and the fire trucks. And after hearing your whole story and connecting the dots, you're now very much a fireman helping to extinguish this idea of the crisis of the midlife and helping people to understand this is actually when it when it's going to get really good because you have the value and benefit of all this life experience and you have the wisdom to know that every day really is a blessing and your health really is a that's your biggest wealth and this portfolio you're talking about of the 6 Fs is what you want to put your focus on to be able to gauge what your true level of success is so i just want to acknowledge you man for for using all of your lessons and takeaways from the ups and from the downs <laughs> and for being a positive image of what a man who is in his late forties looks like and could look like. And for posting so generously on your social media feed and for creating this platform midlifemail.com and the blog and the podcast and just all the things you're doing to make the world a better place and, and putting service right out there in the forefront of your day to day. So Thanks again, man. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for oh, showing up. 
<laughs> thank you my, so my much. Honor. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity and for all you're doing as well. Appreciate getting the the chance to share out there. I mean, you're just doing such such great work yourself. So I'm grateful to you and anything I can do to help support you as well. It's just been great meeting you and getting to know you and what you're doing, Light. So thank you for for being all of those things. Thank you, man. We'll, We'll definitely cross paths again very soon. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Greg Scheinman of the Midlife Mail. You can order his new book, The Midlife Mail, everywhere books are sold. And you can see what else Greg is up to at midlifemail.com. I'll, of course, drop links to everything that we discussed in the show notes on my website, which is at lightwatkins.com slash show. Also, Greg has his own podcast, The Midlife Mail Podcast. And if this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, we've got an incredible archives of past interviews with luminaries such as Ava DuVernay, the film director, Ed Milette the motivational speaker, spoken word artist Saul Williams, chef Marcus Samuelson, and many other luminaries who share how they found their path and their purpose. You can also search interviews by subject matter if you want to see more stories from people who've taken a leap of faith or who've overcome financial struggles or who've navigated health challenges. You can find those specific episodes from the drop-down menu at lightwatkins.com slash show. You can also watch these interviews on my YouTube channel if you go to YouTube and search Light Watkins Podcast. And if you are the type that loves to hear the raw, unedited version of these conversations, you can find that only in my Happiness Insiders online community. So that's at thehappinessinsiders.com. And not only are you going to have access to the unedited version of the podcast, but you'll also get to take my 108-day meditation challenge along with other challenges and masterclasses for becoming the best version of you. And one way to support the show that's free and easy is to leave a rating or a review for the podcast, which you can do really quickly and simply by just glancing down at your device. And if you're on the Apple Podcast app screen, all you do is you click on the name of the podcast, Light Watkins Show. You scroll down past the previous episodes. You'll see a space with five blank stars. If you really like this episode, tap the star all the way on the right and you've left a five-star rating. And if you want to go the extra mile, leave a review with one or two episodes that you recommend a new listener should start with as a way to introduce themselves to the podcast. Thank you very much for that. And otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those scary leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.